directly there, pointing at them, pointing out their sin, their need for a substitute in their place. No reprieve, no breaks, no intermission. And therefore, when John shows up on the scene and he says these words, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Imagine how astounding that would have been. He didn't say many lambs of God who take away some of the sins of the world. He said the one lamb taking away all the sins of the world. I mean, it would have been absolutely shocking to them. And no doubt that's why the author of the Hebrews is having to just hammer this point. I mean, these people are being led back into sacrifices in Judaism because, of course, brethren, how could their question not have been, could God really wipe out all of our sin with one sacrifice? I mean, he didn't do it with all of the other ones, billions and billions of animals dead, and that didn't wipe out all of our sin. How in the world can this one man do it? And they're being led back to that. And listen, while we never had any of those visual aids, we didn't have that kind of thing. But the need for a substitutionary, propitiatory sacrifice was nonetheless the same for us as it was for them. I mean, brethren, we were so wicked in the sight of God. Paul tells the Ephesians this. You were separated separated from Christ, having no hope and without God in the world. You were literally without hope. You had no hope, brethren. No hope without God in the world. We were slaves to our sin. I mean, you were being led around by the devil like a pig with a ring in its nose. Sons of daughters of disobedience. Cut from the same cloth as Cain, who beat his brother over the head with a rock. That's who we are from. Outside of Christ, that's where we are. That's our nature. You lived by your own passions, carrying out whatever desires you had in your heart and in your mind, And you were, as Paul says, a child of wrath, just like the rest of mankind. Birthed, as it were, for judgment on a one-way track. That's how wicked we were. And it was in that state that Paul says to the Ephesians, Ephesians 2, 4, but God being rich in mercy. I mean, rich in mercy, riches beyond comprehension, rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses. He made us alive together with Christ. I mean, resurrection life. Why, brethren? You don't deserve it. I don't deserve it. Nobody here earned that from God. Great love for you. While you were dead in your sins. Not after you 
Not after you did something to earn your way to God. Not after you did a lot of good acts and therefore drew yourself close to God and then God came in and did the rest. You were nowhere to be seen. Lost in a sea of iniquity. And God came along and he looked at your frail, ugly, dead body just like he did mine. And he said, I love you and I will redeem you. I mean, brethren, he breathed life into us. The depths of love is. I mean, it's where Colossians 2 enters in. Where Paul says that though we were dead in our trespasses. God made us alive together with him. Having forgiven us. All of our trespasses. I mean, all of your trust, all of your sins. They're all gone. They're not seen anymore. If you are a Christian, there's not a single sin still on your account. Forgiven us all of our trespasses. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us. I mean, it was an enemy of us. We had a record of debt that stood against us and it accused us. Stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. I mean, brethren, when it says that he nailed it to the cross, it does not mean that he wrote your sins down and he went over and he stuck them on the cross. Brethren, he nailed the Messiah to the cross. That's how your sins are there. He nailed the Messiah to the cross. That's how your sins are nailed there. And then it came to pass, of course, as the hymn says, on that cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. Wrath of God, done, it is finished. Father, receive my spirit. And this is John's motivation for us. I mean, he says in verse 7, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And then he takes us into the classroom of God's display of this attribute. What does it look like that God has loved us? What does it look like that God has displayed his love? And folks, that's what it looks like. Jesus Christ taking your place as a rebel sinner. You didn't deserve it. You were unrighteous. You were without hope, without God in the world, living in abominations. And God still loved you. He still did it. And brethren, if you're going to imitate things, look to imitate the best things. And this is undoubtedly the best thing to imitate. God sends his son, perfect son, brings us rebellious traitors into his. You sing that song. Once your enemy, now seated at your table. We didn't love him, not even in the slightest. And he showed infinite love for us. And this drives us here to the next point in verse 11. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. And John considers this the necessary outcome of of what God has done for us in love. 
He tells us if God loves us, then we ought to love one another. And brethren, how could it even be any other way? How could someone truly encounter the love of God to that great degree and then go away unchanged? I mean, at some point, this statement is almost unnecessary. I mean, of course, John, (laughs) if God loved us, then yes, we love. I mean, how could we not do that in light of what God has done for us? Brethren, if you claim to be a Christian and pondering the love of God in his sacrifice for sinners, and it does not spur you on to love your brothers, to love your wife, to love the church, to love the lost. Brethren, you might want to stop calling yourself such a thing because that stains this name. Whoever loves has been born of God and whoever has been born of God, they love. They do it. It just is. It's just an axiom. John says it. Jesus says it. The word of God is is clear on that. But the question I want to ask is this. I mean, like I said, it almost seems unnecessary for John to say God has loved us. Therefore, we should love. So what I want to do then is ask the question, well, how, right? What does that actually look like? How exactly do we love? So if you remember, I said, and Scripture says this, not, not me, but love is a fruit of the Spirit. It's produced in the life of a, Christ, of a Christian by the Spirit of God. And as such, its nature is of a supernatural nature. I mean, whatever the world does and calls it love, it's a cheap imitation of what is biblical love in the scriptures. It's not supernatural. And since John is calling us to love because God has loved us, I want us to see at least a few of the characteristics of what kind of shapes what biblical love looks like. Because of who God is, who he's shown himself to be to us, And because of Jesus Christ, some of the things that we want to be shaped by in love is sacrificial love, an unconditional love, and a love which flows from the heart. So this first one, a sacrificial love. I mean, this is the kind of love that is not concerned with what can be gained in return. Remember what our Lord said? You invite people to your home. Who are you to invite to your home? Those who can't, those who can't repay it back to you. Why? Because you'll receive it in the resurrection, he says. Jesus said to give to all who ask of you. Paul says bear, one, says, bear one another's burdens. I mean, there is a sense in which you as a Christian will have to give up things to love properly. You will have to give up time. You will have to give up your money. You will have to give up your priorities, your comfort, your peace, and whatever else is necessary to give up, to love sacrificially. That's what it means for it to be. It has to hurt, brethren. It has to hurt sometimes to put others before ourselves and to love sacrificially. And this is exactly what's laid out for us in Philippians chapter 2. Paul exhorts the church and he says, do nothing. We looked at this at, at James's house and one morning and 
with the kids. Do nothing from selfish ambition. Nothing? I mean, you're supposed to do not a single thing with a view towards self in the Christian life. You're to steer clear of doing anything with a motivation of self. Instead, what? Count others as more significant. Looking to the interest of another individual. And if we're doing nothing from selfish ambition, which is what God calls us to, then of course we have to ask the question, what in the world ought to be our ambition? Well, it's the edification and the building up of the brethren. That's what it has to be for. All things are to be done for that. It's not just that you don't do stuff for self-glorification. It is that you make yourself busy for the building up and edification of the brethren. Sacrificial love is to give and to give and to give and to do it with joy, though you may never receive anything in return. I mean, and brethren, there cannot be anything more Christ-like than that. Secondly, Christian love is unconditional. Unconditional. And if there is anything about Christian love that is so antithetical to the way that the world thinks about love, it's this one. The world's love is almost completely conditional. Relationships are built upon kept conditional requirements. End of story. That's how the world works. I mean, wedding vows mean almost nothing. I just I was just at my brother's wedding as an unbeliever. And they had wedding vows. I mean, they didn't even say till till death do us part. I mean, they didn't say half the stuff that we typically say in our wedding vows. I mean, they might as well could have just said, I promise to love you until I don't. I mean, that's literally all that it means for them. Everything is conditional. All relationships are built upon that kind of thing. And as a lost individual, I don't doubt that many of you probably lost many friendships and relationships simply because of offenses given or taken. And I recognize that that can tend to happen more with women because of the way that we're built, not as emotional in that kind of sense. So maybe it doesn't happen as much. But brethren, is it not true that you probably have people in your life previous to Christ that your friendship was built upon preconceived ideas and conditions of a relationship, whatever those may have been. And when those particular conditions were broken, they wronged you. They said something to you. Bam, right down the middle, friendship gone. And all of it was built upon conditional requirements. Recall to your mind the words of Jesus, Matthew chapter 5. He tells them, you need to love your enemies. Because by doing so, you what? You imitate your father. You act as a good and proper son, living as he has shown himself to be. Because that's what God does. He gives rain both to the wicked and the just and the righteous. And Jesus goes on to say that if you only love those who love you back, what good is that? That's how the, that's how the Gentiles love. That's, that's how lost people love. They love people who love them. They don't love people who don't love them. There's nothing distinct about that. There's nothing unconditional. That is actually completely conditional to love those who love you. That's not Christian love. 
I mean, brethren, to love, even though the object of our love is not deserving of it, is the essence of Christian love. I mean, that is the essence of what Christ has done to us. Undeserving people in Jesus Christ, God the Father showed love for us. That for us is the example. And then lastly this, the Christian love is a love which comes from the heart, brethren. I mean, it's just, it's outflowing of the heart. It's not something that needs to be rigorously produced in the mind and in the flesh. Peter puts it like this, 1 Peter 1, 22, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, for a sincere, brotherly love. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. I mean, that's the idea. This love comes from a pure and earnest heart. One which has been made new. In the new covenant, God promises that he would give us what? A new heart. Your heart is not desperately wicked anymore. Your heart is new. It's a heart that wants to love. A heart that is led by love. And the Christian knows this shift. A love for others that is totally unexplainable. I mean, I don't know about you, but when I became a Christian, I loved people that beforehand I hated. I didn't love the Bible before, and I didn't love Christians. And when God saved me, I loved his word, and I loved God's people. I mean, how do you explain that? This is how we imitate God in his love. That's how we do it. Those are the ways in which we can display that out. Now, finally, look at this. Verse 12. This is sort of the capstone of John's argument. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. This is an interesting thing here at the end. The idea is essentially this, that we can put God on display, manifest him to the world by loving as God has loved. I want to show you this. It begins this point by saying this, no one has ever seen God. It's an interesting statement in the middle, because he hasn't dealt with that. He's just been talking about Love for one another, God's display of love towards us, how we are now to love one. I mean, and then he says, no one has ever seen God. It seems almost like it's out of nowhere. But he has to state this because of the point he is about to make. He wants us to grasp the fact that although God himself is invisible, the love which corresponds to his nature ought not be invisible. That ought to be displayed to the world. We are told that if we love one another, God abides in us. And his love is perfected in us. And brethren, this affects us because we are being told that the world can't see God, but what they can see is us who have God himself in the person of the Spirit indwelling us, And residing in us. And because of this, God is seen. 
God's love is seen. Or at least John's point is, it ought to be. It ought. They may not see God, but they can see you, the Spirit of God, producing in you that which is God's basic characteristic, to love. Brethren, this is so important for us because our witness cannot ring hollow to the world. Our claim to discipleship, our claim to Christianity, to be those who follow Jesus Christ, it must be accompanied by a deep, abiding love that pours forth from the heart, from the Spirit of God, towards the brethren, towards the lost world around us. I mean, Paul says it to the Galatian church. We we, we read it earlier. Faith working through love. This is the display of faith. It is love being working itself. That's what faith does. It works out in love. Love is the practical outworking of faith in God. It is to show the world around us who God is. So we have this inspired account. Where love began. In God. In the heart of God. Not in us. Began in the heart of God. How it was displayed. His giving of the Son. And how we ought to live. I mean to love as He did. And the world around us does want to determine what love is. They want to tell you what it is to be loving and what it is to be mean. Brethren, we need to define it biblically. And maybe in times past... See, this has shifted over the years. Maybe in times past, loving may have been overshadowed by a real pressure upon men to be tough. And now they've just, I mean, they've passed over toughness, they've passed over loving, and they've landed over there on a feminine. And now the most manly men are supposed to be men who wear dresses. We've we've just gone way over to the other side. And Jesus would have never loved such things. We are to love what is good and hate what is evil. Hating what is evil is a loving thing. When love has been shaped biblically, brethren, we can be in all things loving. To act like men and to be shaped by love is a very biblical way to walk. It is to be like Christ. Brethren, that we would have a compassionate heart for the lost. Like Jesus. Like he saw them as sheep without a shepherd. A love for the disciples of Christ. A heart to see them mature, to grow, to develop. A love for the church. Brethren, to see the bride of Christ adorned for her husband. To see the church beautified. A love for righteousness. That we would be holy as our Father is holy. And above all, brethren, a love for God. Our supreme portion. Our supreme and greatest joy. And brothers, like I said, it's fitting that we end here. Because this is the supreme example of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we go out, 
mean, if you shape yourself by this, all other things will fall in. I mean, you give yourself to a life of prayer, a life of watchfulness. You give yourself to determine to love the brethren and to love the world out there, to hate evil, to love good. Brethren, all other things are going to fall in line. Let us love with the heart of Christ. Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus. His display to us is like nothing that could have ever been seen. I mean, Lord, we would have never, we would have never conjured up such glorious things. And, and our Lord Jesus and his display towards us in giving himself for me. I mean, I ha- Lord, I hated you. And you loved me. Lord, my thoughts, they were blasphemous to Christ. I cursed his name. I cursed people who who loved the Lord and you still snatched me out, Lord. I cannot even believe how wonderful you have been. Father, even now, as we now finish these messages, Lord, is it the case that there are still men here who do not know this love of Christ? I mean, why, Lord? Why is it that they would go on in their rebellion, hardening their hearts? Lord, you tell us in your word, now is the acceptable time. Now is the day of salvation. Not even five minutes from now. Lord, come in power. Convict them as they sit in their seat. That the kindness of you, O God, would lead them to repentance. Amen.